0: You are listening to Fancy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fancy value. I believe that this is gonna win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for doing it and still missed out on the Best Director slot.
1: Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times.
0: Thank you to the Academy, thank you to all of you in this room. I can't
1: remember the last time I walked out of the movie theater in such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies.
0: And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 8 of Fantasy Film Ball, my name's Dill.
1: And my name's Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports, and sports into something that we don't talk about here. And this week we've got a a really special week. We've got a lot of big announcements coming in, a lot of uh, things moving in the Oscar race, things that are really going to impact what this year's Academy Awards is going to look like. So we're really excited to jump in and talk about that. Before we do, Dil, how's it going? How's your week been, man? My week has been pretty well. I get
0: to go to a concert tomorrow or Saturday for oh. when people are listening. I'm seeing The Weeknd in DC. It's a two years in the making type concert because it was originally supposed to happen in June of 2020. But as we know, nothing in yeah. 2020 really Is this still the anymore.
1: After Hours tour or is it's this the Dawn FM now? After Hours
0: plus Dawn FM. So okay. It's a, it's a two in one. And originally Doja Cat was supposed to be the opener. But as uh, many people know, she can't really sing right now because of her. Surgery she had, so now we have two DJs as the opener. So that will be a really interesting experience because I've seen DJs perform before, but like in more intimate settings. Like, what's a DJ like in like a stadium setting?
1: Dude, that's amazing. I mean, to see the weekend, he's definitely a, a dream concert of mine too. I think that uh, After Hours is like the perfect pop album in my mind. So like, I, I'm very jealous of you. Uh, I he played in Toronto, obviously it's his hometown. Um, I did not get tickets because they are so expensive, and I'm lucky I didn't because the uh, concert got canceled (laughs) because of, like, all of our cell service shut down. Yeah, power outage, cell service (laughs) shut down. So, you know, I'm lucky I didn't get tickets anyways. Well... If you do want tickets, I've seen that on the day of the concert, if it's not
0: a sellout, they do drop in price. And he's coming back to Toronto, I think, in late September.
1: So there'll still be a chance. But how's your week been so far? My week's been okay. I mean, I've just been recovering from COVID. Uh, which I was very lucky it didn't hit me too hard. So I've just been watching movies, doing some writing and uh, doing a lot of Oscar predicting stuff, a lot of swapping around my predictions and you know, getting hyped over TIFF and Venice. And uh, speaking of TIFF and Venice though, let's just talk a little bit. Uh, obviously we always start our show with a question. And this week, because of all of these festival announcements, we're talking first film festival experiences. So Dill. Let me know. What's what's your first film festival experience? What did you see? Where'd you go?
0: Well, it's funny enough that you're wearing the Jojo Rabbit t-shirt because I saw Jojo Rabbit in 2019 at the Virginia Film Festival, along with some other films, including Just Mercy, Waves, Marriage Story, and Parasite. So it's a pretty packed year, to say so. Um, I really wanted to go the year before because they were showing If Beale Street Could Talk, and Moonlight is one of my favorite movies of all time. So seeing Barry Jenkins next was really high on my list, but by the time I found out, wait, Virginia does have a film festival and it's not that far away, it was sold out. And I didn't really want to drive like an hour to then stand in a line and possibly not get a ticket. But overall, it was a blast. I've gone every year since even the COVID year when they had stuff in like a drive-in style where I saw Nomadland and One Night in Miami. But each year it's been a blast. I can't wait to go back later this year. I think it's the first week of November. So I still have a ways away, but I know your film festival experience comes a little bit sooner in the year.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always gone to TIF. Uh, I have gone since two thousand twelve. I went when I was uh, a freshman in high school. Um, I was. I remember in twenty eleven when I was in the eighth grade, I was begging uh, my parents to let me go to TIF, and I finally convinced them when I was in the ninth grade. You know, let's go to TIF. Let's go to TIF. Let's go to TIF. Uh, and so my first year at TIF in two thousand twelve. Um, I saw four movies there. I saw Contiki, uh, which ended up getting a Best Foreign Language Film nomination for Denmark, I think. Uh, yeah. Which Contiki, great film. So good. Um, and then I also saw Cloud Atlas, which blew my mind. That was my most anticipated movie of 2012, and I loved it. We were so lucky to get tickets for that one. Uh, and then I also picked up... like last-minute tickets to see Francis Ha, uh, which I didn't like at the time, and I now really love that movie. And I also saw Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, uh, which was not great. I haven't seen it since, so, you know, maybe it's better than I remember, but also maybe it's not. Joss Whedon sucks, so, you know. Uh, but at the time, he was just coming off of The Avengers, so it was like, oh, my God, it's Joss Whedon's new movie. And I remember at the Q&A, the... Uh, the TIFF people came out and said we were forbidden to ask any questions about the Avengers at this Q&A. <laughs> Not allowed. Uh, but yeah, I've gone to TIFF every year, and that's always been such a, a major part of my year. And so I always refer to this week in the summer when TIFF starts announcing things. This is like, honestly, it's like Christmas morning for me. I get to unwrap all the presents, see what uh, what films I'm going to get to see in September. Uh, so I'm really excited, and... Uh, I just can't wait.
0: Well, I'm I'm excited for you because the TIFF lineup this year is stacked, which we'll get into here in a little bit. But another film festival announced this lineup recently was Venice, and we got a trailer for one of the movies that are going to Venice being Tar. And what did you think about that trailer?
1: Oh, dude, this looks great. This looks great. I mean, uh, Kate Blanchett has some amazing buzz around her for this film, for Tar, Uh, The director of this film, Todd Field, he's made a few films before, and his first film in the bedroom uh, got a Best Picture nomination, and then he made Little Children, which got a bunch of acting nominations, and then he disappeared for, like, 13 years, hasn't made anything. He's been trying to make some films. I think he's been trying to make an adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, uh, but he hasn't gotten anything successfully off the ground until this, Tar. Tar. Uh, And it's now in the Venice lineup, and the trailer looks so good. I mean, you don't see much in the trailer. You really see Kate Blanchett, like, uh, she's exhaling some smoke out of her mouth as we hear narration, and then she conducts uh, an orchestra. It looks so cool, though. I'm really hyped. What do you think about this one? Tar? So I know in the previous episodes
0: I've mentioned I wasn't very high on this movie. I thought maybe it was being a little overstated just because of Todd Field's track record and it being Kate Blanchett. Because like every year people say Kate Blanchett, if she's in a movie, she's top two. But after seeing the trailer, I think I am coming around. She has moved into my five for actress. Tar is rising in screenplay and picture, and I really like the trailer. It, it it made me a lot more interested in the movie than I was beforehand. And a trailer that kind of had the same effect but also didn't was till where i had a little mixed feelings before seeing it and then still seeing it, i still have mixed feelings there's some things i'm more excited for after seeing it but other things i'm like a little wary after seeing the trailer how'd you feel about till
1: Uh, honestly i i was really majorly let down by the trailer especially because Chinonye Chukwu, who is the director of Till, she just made Clemency, which although Clemency wasn't one of my favorite films of 2019, it was was a decent film and it, it really did something interesting. It was dramatic and it said something. And with the Till trailer, what I'm getting out of this is it just feels like very basic Oscar bait. Uh, the trailer felt so formulaic. Yes, it looked nice, but to me, I don't see what this story, what, what this representation of such a tragic, horrific story, what does this have to add to the conversation? I don't know. I'm really not convinced by this, uh, and to me, this trailer convinced me to basically drop this out of my predictions.
0: Yeah, I think I'm almost to that point as well. We don't have to wait very long because it is on a screen at some of the fall festivals to see if it is just pure Oscar bait and one of those movies where it's like this had Oscar buzz where yeah. nothing really comes out of it. I still feel like this could be a play, kind of like Clemency, where Clemency had some buzz for the actors, yeah.
1: but ultimately at the end of the
0: day did not come through. And I feel like the that's interesting
1: thing. Yeah, the interesting thing about Till is that it's premiering at the New York Film Festival the same week that it goes to theaters. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, feels like a bit of a red flag, because this is a film that people were saying, this is a TIFF film. This is this could be played at TIFF, this could win TIFF, and then for it to just go, you know, it's going to be premiered three days before it goes to theaters. It's not a great look. Also, it seems like the, uh, the team behind the film is already on the defense because as they announced this, they put out a statement saying, we're not trying to capitalize off of trauma. We're not trying to capitalize off of this. This is not a film about trauma. It's a film about love. Um, but ultimately, if you're telling the story of Emmett Till, uh, that is truly not a story of love. That is, that is a traumatic story. Uh, it's a heartbreaking really difficult story and if you're doing it as something else if you're trying to say this is a story about love that's a hard sell Uh, and for some people it might work and for others it's really gonna put them off of this and in that same vein moving into our Venice discussion for today there's
0: another movie that kind of has the same buzz around it right now of where it's not really feeling like it's about love, more capitalizing off of horrific events, and that is Andrew Dominic's Blonde, which is finally hitting its premiere after it. it was in production development for years. Yeah,
1: are, did you see the new trailer for Blonde? I've kind of avoided it.
0: I have not seen it as well. I'm doing the same thing. That first trailer gave me enough. I saw some of the photos, and the photos look cool, but because this movie comes out so soon... I'm, like, I can withhold myself, because it's a Netflix movie, too, so you're not really going
1: to see trailers, like, on TV or at the theater, like, Mm -hmm. you have to seek the trailer yourself. Absolutely. Well, I mean, with Blonde, this is one that I think has a really good chance of just astounding critics, but I've said in past weeks, this movie is going to get, like, a 4.0 on Letterboxd, no, so not on Letter on IMDb. On Letterboxd, a 4.0 is good. On IMDb, a 4.0 is bad. Uh, audiences are not going to like this one. So, uh, But, you know, Blonde comes in the uh, Venice competition lineup alongside a bunch of other really interesting ones, including The Whale. Tar, of course, which we already mentioned. Love Life, which is a Japanese film. As well as Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths by Alejandro González and We also have Athena... Bones and All by Luca Guadagnino, The Eternal Daughter from Joanna Hogg, Banshees of Inisherin from Martin McDonough, No Bears from Jafar Panahi, a little bit of a documentary contender, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed by Laura Poitras, A Couple by Frederick Wiseman, and of course The Sun from Florian Zeller. So that is a stacked lineup. Dil, is there anything in there that's really catching your attention? What are you looking out for from the Venice lineup?
0: So I've loved all of, Energetic movie, so Bardo definitely is at the top for me. But to pick something a little bit different, Bones and All really has my attention. I love Taylor Russell. I love Timothy Chalamet, and a cannibal horror drama romantic story kind of feels like it's up my alley for something that's just very different, but also could be very good. Because while I'm a little bit mixed on Luca Guadagnino's previous films, I really liked his screenplays usually, so I feel like this will be a movie that it will be. Just one that really speaks to me and it's just like one that's up my alley, but I can fully see why other people will be turned off on it before the beginning even starts.
1: Right. I guess that makes sense. I mean, Bones and All is one that I'm also really looking forward to, but I don't really know what to think about it. Especially, I was, I was more mixed than most people were on Suspiria. I thought mm-hmm. Suspiria was good, but it wasn't great. So I don't know what Luca has to offer in the horror genre that he hasn't already put out there with Suspiria. Yeah. Definitely. And then another one that really jumps out the page
0: to me is I was a big advocate for the father all season long, so I was really happy when it had that late season push. And I'm interested to see what Florian Zeller has to offer time number two adapting one of his plays to the screen, because the father had the benefit of it having two just top-tier actors and actresses. And not that the son doesn't have that, it's just they don't have Sir Anthony Hopkins or Olivia Coleman. And... Those are two actors and actresses I really love. So it's interesting to see here with The Sun, pulling some other names. Will this be to like the peak, like number one, number two of the year for me? Or is it going to be something along the lines of like,
1: it's good, but it's not great? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that The Sun, I've heard some great things about the play that it's based on. But, of course, it's not as unique. It's not as different as the father was because the father brought an entire different perspective to the table, whereas the son is much more straightforward. Um, But I'm still really looking forward to that. And I definitely think that Hugh Jackman could walk away with the festival's acting prize for this film. I
0: fully see that as well. Looking at this lineup, his biggest competition would probably be in the way with Brendan Fraser, but there's a lot of movies here and there's a lot of people who could contend. Is there anyone else
1: you see as a sleeper contender for that award? Honestly, to me right now, it looks like it's between Brendan Fraser and Hugh Jackman. Brendan Fraser and the Whale is going to be an incredible performance, though, and I'm so excited to see what he does in that. Uh, I don't know which of those two is going to be my favorite, but here's another thing to keep in mind. These international festivals, can Venice, a lot of the time when they pick their acting prizes, when they pick their big prizes, we, as, as Western, as American uh, viewers, we're looking at it through a lens of what do we think is going to make it into the Oscar race? And that's not what they always pick for these big awards. So the Volpi Cl- Cup, the, the acting prize at Venice, yeah, could it go to Kate Blanchett for Tar? Could it go to someone from Bardo or The Sun or The Whale? Absolutely. But it also could go to someone entirely different. Keep in mind, last year Kristen Stewart did not win for Spencer uh, at Venice. Uh, Venice. So it really could be anyone. It was Penelope Cruz that won last year. So everyone is going to predict the people that they know, the people that they're expecting to get in for the Oscars, and it's Venice. It might not shake up that way. But something I have to ask you, looking at this list here, I feel like we're going to be in agreement uh, with what's going to walk away with the top prize. And I'm going to guess, because for me, it feels like it's got to be Bardo that's going to win that top prize at Venice. And how are you feeling about that? Is it Bardo for you too? Yeah, Bardo would definitely be at the top of my list for now. I could see a surprise if the international
0: audience just loves Blonde because of how off the walls it is. But if they didn't give it to Spencer last year, I don't see them giving it to Blonde because Blonde's going to be even more off the deep end than Spencer was. But I Mm -hmm. would go Bardo at one and then probably – Maybe the Sun at two with then Blonde at three. But I thought there's a huge discrepancy
1: from one down to that two and three. Absolutely. I mean, for me, uh, Julianne Moore is, of course, the head of the jury this year. So I don't know exactly what she's going to like, what she might be drawn towards. But I think that there is a possibility Blonde could be her type of film, the type of film that her jury might go towards. Bardo feels like the easy pick, but that said, last year The Power of the Dog seemed like it was the easy pick for a win for The Golden Lion last year, and what walked away with it? It was Happening, which was a French film by director Audrey DeWan, which we hadn't heard of beforehand. It was not going to TIFF. It was not doing anything uh, after Venice, basically. So could it be something completely out of left field? Totally. Uh, But right now, the safe pick here for the Golden Lion really is Bardo. I fully back that as well. And looking at some of these movies out of competition,
0: I know one really sticks out to me. I think that one sticks out to you as well, but do you want to run through the
1: list and then talk a little bit about what you think about each film? Absolutely. I mean, out of competition, I've just picked a few ones that are notable, that are kind of interesting to have here. For one, we have Living by director Oliver Hermanas. Now, this is a film that I saw at Sundance, and it's a very rare title at Venice, which has played at a previous festival. Usually, Venice is all world premieres. And so to see something that played at Sundance playing in Venice... Out of competition of course is uh it's still very interesting to see so could living be could this be an indicator that sony pictures classics does want to push living a little bit more absolutely we also have master gardener by director paul schrader who has just come out with first reformed the card counter and this is finishing up his trilogy uh his bresson trilogy i think is what he's calling it right now We also have a horror movie, a prequel to the movie X by director Ty West. This is Pearl, starring Mia Goth. Um, And then the one that I'm really most interested in here, but that said, I was kind of expecting it to be in competition based on the rumors. Don't worry, darling, director Olivia Wilde. This one is playing out of competition, just like Last Night in Soho did last year. So... Is this, uh, is this a parallel right here? Last Night in Soho, don't worry, darling. I do think that this is a parallel. Uh, and finally, uh, in com- in Out of Competition, we also have In Viaggio, which is by director Gianfranco Rossi, uh, who was a documentary nominee just a few years ago for his uh, his documentary Fire at Sea. Uh, now, Fire at Sea, of course, was a very arthouse um it was not my favorite documentary of the year, I'm going to say. But I'm including it here just because, of course, this is a documentary contender. He has been nominated before, and I think that we should consider that it's very possible that he gets in again. Of course, we also have TV shows premiering at Venice from Lars von Trier and from Nicholas Wending Reffin. So there's Venice's lineup is pretty stacked, honestly, overall. But what are you thinking about this out-of-competition lineup? I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth of don't worry, darling, it's going to be this year's Last Night in
0: Soho just because it doesn't really make sense why it is out of competition other than Warner Brothers isn't as confident as it was beforehand. But it's still one I'm very much looking forward to. I love Florence Pugh and everything I've seen her in. I'm interested to see the dynamic of what this movie will be with all the rumors from behind the scenes stuff from all the yeah. trailers giving multiple different feels for what this movie could actually feel like to just it's being a big scale movie like it's getting a wide release but it's a very different type of movie getting a wide release and i'm always in support of more of those mid-budget movies getting wide releases over just instead of blockbusters all the time so i'm down totally. with don't worry darling i'm ready to see pearl as well i liked x i wasn't head over heels for x like most people were but i still really appreciate it so i'd like to see what the prequel of that movie looks like and i've heard you hype up living all podcasts long for the last eight it's episodes great. so i'm really excited to see what all the buzz is about with that one as well
1: yeah, and in terms of out-of-competition, it doesn't just mean that Warner Brothers is not confident in the film, because I'm sure they tried to get into competition. Everyone wants those competition slots. We see in-competition here, there's tons of Netflix films, there's tons of these uh, big films which are vying for Oscar consideration. And generally, when you look at in-competition, out-of-competition, it doesn't mean anything about the quality of a film. For example, last year, Dune played out-of-competition at Venice. All it means is that it doesn't fit what the programmers view as a competition film, right? So you look at Bardo, you look at uh, Banshees of Inisherin, you look at Tar or Blonde or The Whale, and those being in competition, that says something that the programmers of the festival are, are considering it worthy of that really, really um, highbrow spot right? That is a prestigious honor to be included in competition. So it's not to say that Don't Worry Darling won't be good. It's not to say that Dune wasn't viewed as good last year. It's just not the type of film that typically plays in competition. So could Don't Worry Darling still be spectacular? Absolutely. But I am a little bit weary of it not being in competition because to me, it says that the programmers don't view it as that type of film, as a prestigious film. Um, so, I'm a little bit worried, but overall, there are some really great selections here, specifically in competition. I'm really excited to see a couple by Fre- Frederick Wiseman, which, uh, Frederick Wiseman's been making documentaries since the 60s, and this is his first narrative film, so I'm really excited to see that one come out. Well, I know that we are both excited to see all the
0: reactions out of Venice, but you're probably a little bit more excited about all the films coming to TIFF, because you get to oh, see Oh, yeah, buddy. Oh, yeah, and, man. There's been a lot of buzz about one specific movie coming to TIFF because this director's been making movies for a long time and he's never had one come to TIFF. That's breaking this year with The Fablemans. How excited are you for the opportunity to see that?
1: Well, obviously, this is my number one most anticipated movie of the fest. I know that this is going to be the hardest ticket to get at the festival, maybe ever. I mean, Dune last year, that was a wild ticket to try and get. Um, I did see an industry screening, so I did not go to the premiere of that, but I would love to be in the same room as Steven Spielberg, so I really want to get to that world premiere this year, but that ticket is going to be insanely hard to to get to, but honestly, this TIFF lineup is absolutely incredible, and the thing that blows my mind, TIFF announced 63 films, this is like 25% of their full lineup, they have usually about 200 films, so... This is not even the beginning of what we're about to get. Um, Of course, this is most of the big films that Tiff is going to get. It's not like they're going to keep announcing insanely big films after this. There will be a few more that are currently missing here. But that said, uh, this is most of the big films here. And there are some big surprises here. Uh, Like, I definitely did not expect to see Empire of Light in this lineup.
0: Definitely. This is one I've heard a lot of people in the industry saying, like, this won't really hit the fall festivals. Mendez is a big enough name where he can just drop this in December, and that's good enough, just like 1917 did. But um, I know there's one here that you were predicting all, like, ever since we started this podcast, that it was going to go to TIFF. And yeah. here it is, your number two woman talking.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. We've heard reports about a battle between Venice and Telluride and TIFF to secure the world premiere Of women talking and I kept saying there's no way that it world premieres at Telluride. It's either going to world premiere at Venice or it's going to world premiere at TIFF and what happened? It gets a world premiere at Telluride which is nuts to me. It's so crazy and the reason it's insane to me that it gets a world premiere at Telluride is because Telluride usually screens for like An audience of what like a couple hundred people total like that is a very isolated film festival it's very small film festival it's very industry centric film festival and women talking i know firsthand that film was gunning for venice all the way along and so now i'm curious did venice reject the film or did telluride just make an offer that sarah polly and mgm could not refuse but you know, it's going to TIFF no matter what, and I am so excited to see Women Talking. I really, really have been following this film for a very long time, and I cannot wait. But Women Talking, that is a big People's Choice contender as well. So, you know, I'm I'm just really, really excited for that film. Um, and, yeah, I'm just blown away that it did not go to Venice and it's choosing Telluride. I have no idea. Do you have any idea why that might be? <laughs> like, Honestly, not really other than
0: if venice said no but we've always heard reports of venice saying no to movies that turn out not to be true because like the reports were venice said no to blonde but look blonde's there this year so i don't really know i think it probably was just what you said they just made an offer that they couldn't refuse and some mm-hmm. other films that we he- have here at tiff like the aforementioned the sun and the whale that are both going to be at venice empire light which i know i was blown away about and you said you were too but we have one movie that I think is a real strong underdog contender to win the
1: people's choice, and that's Glass Onion. Glass Onion, of course, and that was the first film announced. So we've known about Glass Onion for a while, but Knives Out Knives Out, was a breakout sensation at TIFF a few years ago. And so Glass Onion is looking to replicate that success. Is it going to? Totally possibly. Now, I am a little bit worried that maybe Knives Out was lightning in a bottle and Glass Onion might just be seen as second best. I think it's still going to be enjoyable, but it's possible that Glass Onion does not live up to the expectations set by Knives Out, but we're going to have to see very soon. And another one that really surprised me here to show up was Wendell and Wilde, Jordan Peele, and uh, Keegan-Michael Key. That is such an odd choice for a film festival film, but I'm so excited that it's here. Obviously, we've both talked about how much we love Key and Peele, and what do you think about Wendell and Wilde showing up in this lineup?
0: So originally, Window and While I think was my number three for best animated when we started this a few months ago because I think it was Pinocchio, Lightyear, than Window and While, and it's dropped a little bit. But the fact that it's showing up here speaks to me at least that Netflix is confident in this and that they want eyes on this movie, especially to people in the industry that will be attending. So to me, this is a sign of confidence from the studio because like this is gonna be a very I feel like crowd pleasing type movie because a lot of people do like Coraline and a lot of people do like He and Peele, but to get it to the widest audience possible before it hits Netflix to build that buzz, I feel like is a very positive sign for this movie and what I'm very excited to see. But another movie I'm very excited to see that has already had eyes on it is Triangle of Sadness. Is that one that you're going to try to catch
1: as well? Oh dude, I am so excited. I'm actually trying to catch it before the festival. I'm, I'm in talks to hopefully get a screener for the film. Um, But I am so excited for Triangle of Sadness and it would be so much fun to see this with a big audience there. And talking about big audience pleasers, we have the villain of the season getting a TIFF world premiere, the greatest beer run ever. How excited are you for this beer run and is it going to be the greatest one ever?
0: You know, the greatest one ever could be up for debate, but I'm actually very excited for this movie. If the rumors are true about Killers of the Flower Moon fleeting... This makes the most sense for Apple to push because there's, there's talks about emancipation. But, I mean, there was news today with Will Smith, so that could be the start of Apple's campaign and be like, hey, let's try to, you know, make you in a oh, better way. Um, what was the Will out, Smith news? He put out a video, I think it was about four minutes. I haven't seen it myself yet, but I saw the news report uh, when I was driving back after seeing the movie that we'll talk about here in a little bit, and he put out a formal video apology to the Academy, to Chris Rock, to everyone, saying that the... The slap and the whole way he acted was not a representation of him or his morals and stuff along those lines. So, I don't know if that was, I mean, I'm sure um, Will wanted to have his own opinions out there because I saw it like the sub headline says he's been trying to contact Chris Rock, but Chris Rock is not open to discussion with him at the moment, which is completely understandable. But this also could be Apple saying, like, hey, let's start this a little sooner than we thought because I was thinking that Will Smith was going to be someone who's going to be out of like the limelight for like a year or two try to see if people would loosen their opinions of the incident, and then that's when Emancipation would drop, because he got paid a big amount for that movie. I think the report the other day was $50 million. So this is a big movie for him. This is a big movie for Apple. And if Killers is gone, they have Greatest Beer Run Ever, and they have Emancipation. And Emancipation seems like it has a lot of baggage. But this movie could as well. But it seems like it would be a fun time. Peter Farrelly doesn't make the quote quote. Oscar-type movies, but he makes he makes usually enjoyable movies that sometimes have a little bit of baggage attached to them.
1: No, totally. I mean, I'm totally prepared to not love The Greatest Beer Run Ever, but it would be a really fun movie to watch with an audience at TIFF. I mean, I saw Green Book at TIFF when it won the People's Choice Award. It was not on my radar before that. But that was a movie that... I went into expecting nothing, and I really enjoyed when I saw it at TIFF. But of course, later on, I, I rewatched it. I've seen it three times now. The first time when I saw it at TIFF, I loved it. And every single time, I've liked it less and less, especially as I think more about it and as I read more about it. It's one that really has soured. Um, It's just a very simple film, and I think that it, really tries to give itself a little bit too much credit. Now, is The Greatest B-Run ever going to be fun? Probably. Is it going to be a masterpiece? Absolutely not. But I'm still looking forward to seeing it, and I am dreading if it wins the People's Choice Award, which is very possible. It is possible,
0: and there's another movie that is going to tip that I feel like also has a chance, maybe not to win, but definitely placed
1: in the top three, and that's Bros. Bros. Yeah, I mean, Bros. That's one that I've heard amazing buzz about it was supposed to come out in the summer and the studio went no this is getting amazing test screenings this we're gonna put this in september so that we can go to tiff so that we can get some awards buzz they're trying to position this as the big sick they want that screenplay nomination and they could totally get it so this was one that i'm really looking forward to and i am imagining this winning the people's choice award and the chaos that that would Cause, Like, would this make Best Picture? Probably not, but that would be chaotic, you know, absolute chaos. Well, on the opposite side of chaos,
0: there's a lot of international films coming to TIFF that people have laid eyes on before, but this will be an even bigger chance for people to see them, including Decision to Leave, Holy Spider, Corsage, and one that people haven't seen yet, but I know we talked about last week that we're excited
1: to see with All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh dude, All Quiet on the Western Front being here is so good for the film, especially after it misses Venice. I was really worried about it, but you know, being at TIFF, it's got me a little bit more confident again, especially just showing that Netflix is positioning for fall festivals, so could this be a contender? Totally. I really think it can. Seeing photos, seeing all of that, it's really something to get excited for. There's a lot of stuff here, but of course there are some missing films. There always are some missing films uh, at TIFF. And it's always interesting because you can never predict which films are going to miss. I mean, obviously there was already talk about stuff like Babylon not being here. We didn't expect Babylon to be here. But it is a little bit weird to look at the TIFF lineup and see Bardo missing. Right, Bardo's at Venice and it's not here and neither is Blonde or Bones and All or Don't Worry Darling. That was one that seemed like a lock for TIFF, especially because they have another Florence Pugh movie with The Wonder and they have another Harry Styles movie with My Policeman, so having Don't Worry Darling there would totally make sense. But it's really odd that that one is not here and apparently it's because Warner Brothers didn't want it to be. Uh, We also have I Want to Dance with Somebody which is going to be playing, uh, which is not going to be playing at TIFF, sorry. It's not gonna be playing at TIFF, and I know that there was some talk earlier about it being there, and it's not. Uh, we're also missing on She Said, which there was some rumors of a TIFF premiere, Um, but who knows, maybe that's one that's added later. That's one that seems like it could be added later. We're also missing Tar, which we just talked about, but I really, really think that is a Best Picture contender, and that missing is really, really uh, odd. And White Noise, of course, missing as well. So there is a lot of stuff missing, but could some of that be filled out in future weeks? Totally. And is some of it going to stay missing and stay weird? Absolutely. But again, things missing here, it's not the end of the world. Last year, King Richard missed here, and I wrote it off saying if King Richard was going to be an Oscar contender, it would be at TIFF. It ended up being an Oscar contender anyways, so TIFF does not matter. But, you know, it's just disappointing for me. Definitely, and you
0: said something about She Said skipping out on Tiff, and She Said is one that I feel like would be a perfect film to be at the New York Film Festival, because they need that big premiere, especially they're missing out with The Fablemans, which is a movie I personally thought would go there for its premiere, that Mm -hmm. She Said could easily fill into that either opening night or centerpiece type movie at the New York Film Festival if Universal decides to want to send it. Because Universal could just see this as a movie that doesn't need to go to the film festivals and can just debut in when it comes out in theaters in December.
1: Totally. I mean, I've heard some really good buzz this week about She Said. There's been some screenings this week. And reports are that the film is really, really strong. So, She Said, I do think that could be a New York Film Festival premiere. But that said, I think the film comes out pretty early in November, so that might be pushing it a little bit to to bring it to New York. That said, we're gonna be seeing very soon what happens with She Said and what happens with the New York Film Festival. And lastly in news, we've been going on news for a while because there's so much going on, but this is the big bombshell of the week. Killers of the Flower Moon is reportedly pushed to 2023. And how are you feeling about that, Dil? I am not feeling well about that because Killers of the Flower Moon is a
0: movie I am very high on in a lot of categories. Um, it had been battling in my heart to take over Avatar for my number one. I know I've been saying Avatar going to stay one until I'm proven otherwise. But I was just getting that feeling about Killers with all the test screenings and just how stuff was shaking out that this should be the early one at least. But with these reports, I'm a little bit scared. This is one that also, like the reports may not come out true because like they said the same thing about wolf of wall street and some other scorsese movies in the past that ultimately did come out but the fact that deadline did report it and deadline usually doesn't report stuff unless like they know for a fact that this is probably accurate so it it, it will really take a lot of my categories that we'll talk about here later but whatever scorsese and his team feel like is best for this movie i'm in full support of
1: yeah, I mean, we've had this happen with Scorsese before, with Shutter Island, that was supposed to come out in 2009, came out in 2010, uh, and it happened uh, with The Irishman, I think, I think people were thinking The Irishman was supposed to come out in 2018, and he took an extra year on it, so, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, this is one that it could, uh, it could come out next year, and it That could be a good thing. There are reports that it might be going to the Cannes Film Festival. And if that is the case, that is honestly, in my mind, an even bigger deal for this film and shows that this is a film that not only is the studio really excited about, but also film programmers see it as prestigious and see it as worthy of giving that, like I said earlier, really prestigious festival slot. I could
0: definitely see that if it does come out for Cannes next year, having a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood type trajectory where it is that Early one, everyone has it at one. It does dip a little bit, but then it has a late resurgence where it's battling for picture, battling for a screenplay, and even comes away with an
1: actor, or maybe even two, winning for awards. Oh, totally. I mean, that is 100% a likely trajectory. And really, all that I think that the goal should be is just to keep it from being another Irishman, where it peaks so early that no one's talking about it by Oscar day. Um, Because the Irishman, that was one that everyone was saying, that's number one, it's number one, it's number one. People were saying, you're stupid if you don't think this is number one. This is number one. And then it came out and it got a lot of nominations and then just did nothing. So... uh, really what Apple should be trying to do is making sure that Killers of the Flower Moon does not have that same trajectory where everyone thinks it's going to be big and then it's just not. I think another thing Apple should be wary of is making sure
0: this is not a silence where just no one sees it. And I think one way they're yeah. already trying to make sure that does not happen is they have a deal with Paramount so this movie will get a theatrical release. I think I saw it was supposed to be 45 days. I could be wrong on that but it was getting a theatrical release before it goes to Apple+. Plus. So they're already no, trying to make great. sure that people are
1: getting eyes on it. It's just, when will those eyes be on it? 2022 or 2023? Absolutely. I think, honestly, it might be a better choice instead of dropping it in December to drop it in the summer next year so that people can you know have some time to talk about it, have some time to go and see it in theaters rather than just dropping it in the midst of Oscar season. I think this is a film that could stand on its own for half of a year, so... Really, that is one that I personally, I don't think it's a big... I mean, yeah, it totally messes up our predictions if we lose Killers of the Flower Moon this year. But I think it might be better for the film itself if it does move to 2023. So that's one that, you know, I I think we're going to talk more about the implications in just a few minutes. But before then, we've been watching a few things this week, and we want to kind of talk about some of the things that we've been watching. And, Dill, this morning you just went to see Fire of Love, right? I did, and it was a blast. I absolutely adored
0: the cinematography of this movie, if you want to even call it cinematography, because they were just going out there shooting, and everything they were shooting was just awe-inspiring and just really eye-popping. I especially loved when they went to the volcanoes that had the more... The red colors, because they, they make a point in the movie to separate red volcanoes from gray volcanoes in terms of like the smoke. And the, the ones with red were just so beautiful. And not that the gray ones were not, but everything in this movie was, in terms of visuals, was just amazing. I really love the 2D animation they bring into some scenes as well to show like a diagram or show what is actually happening because they are not physically there when the eruption is happening. And... I really love that aspect of the movie. I have some thoughts
1: with the movie, but I will let you talk about how you feel about the movie before I dive into that. I mean, you're totally right. It's got some of the most beautiful nature footage ever. And now we, I'm going to talk a little bit about Oscars here before we move on. Uh, But to me, this feels like a really strong Oscar contender for documentary. I think right now I have it in my number two slot for Docs this year. Now, something that is dangerous about this film is it is entirely reliant on archive footage, and we've seen tons of movies in the past get dropped from the Oscars, get uh, left out on nominations morning because they rely entirely on archive footage. So Fire of Love might have that dangerous trajectory coming its way. Could it be a Jane? Like in uh, 2018, no, 2017, that was Jane. Jane missed, it was entirely archive footage. Apollo 11, that was another one, archive footage and it missed out. But we've seen a a little bit of a resurgence of archive footage with Crip Camp, Summer of Soul, Fire of Love, I really feel like has a strong case for being a doc contender. So really, I hope it does get in despite the archive footage. But like I said, like you said, That archive footage is some of the most beautifully shot stuff that you're ever going to see, especially those red volcanoes. There's one shot in the movie of—it's like a waterfall of lava, and Mm -hmm. it's one of the most stunning images I've ever seen. I fully back all that up. I personally have Fire Love at my number one.
0: That's just because I'm not as knowledgeable as you are in the documentary category at the moment, so I'm putting what I have seen at the top, even though, like you said, found footage—or archive footage, I guess is the better word to use— is not always has the best track record, but we are coming off of a year where a movie almost entirely of archive footage won in the documentary category. It did have some in-person interviews, but the majority of the movie was with that. So Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see if Fire of Love can continue that trend or if it's going to revert back to normal where stuff is just ignored. Yeah,
1: I mean, and Fire of Love has a great narrative. I actually, I have, um, a friend of mine has friends who, uh, made this movie, her friends made this movie. Um, And so she told me a lot of stuff about the production of this movie and reportedly um, the team behind this movie was planning not planning on this movie coming out this year. Uh, They were planning on taking a little bit more time, but then they were informed, hey, Werner Herzog has access to the same archive, he's making the same movie as you are right now he's using the same footage and he's making a movie about the crafts and you need to get this film out first, otherwise Werner Herzog is going to steal your thunder. And so they literally sat down for six months and like just absolutely sprinted to the finish line to get this film ready and get it to Sundance so to me that is an amazing narrative of what they accomplished they managed to get the entire film done in like less than a year pretty much it was really a tight timeline and they did it so well so if nothing else i think that this movie should get rewarded for the editing of it because that is a crazy process that they went through to get this film finished
0: I'm always an advocate of different types of movies getting recognized for editing because it's always the best picture or just the action movies. But like, in like my personal nominations, I've had Summer of Soul even winning the award last year and other documentaries or animated films or just different types of films should be getting editing love. So it's something that I would really like to see maybe the Baptist go for because we've seen the Baptist go for those type of movies in the past, but sadly, overall... As, like, you know, the Oscars would never touch a doc in the editing category
1: in this climate that we're at right now. Yeah, totally. It happened in the past. It might not happen again. Now, there's another movie that you saw this year, uh, this week, another kind of documentary, Marcel the Shell. Did you see it this week? I did see it, and my problem with Fire
0: Love also carries over into Marcel, but I still really love both movies. And my issue of mm. both of them would be the pacing. There's times where it really dies, And it feels like a a slog for like five or 10 minutes, but then it shoots right back up. Like both movies start off on a super high, high, they take a little dip, but then at one point they shoot back up and they never come back down. And Marcel, I think, has an amazing first 15 minutes, an amazing last like 45. There's just like a 10 minute span in the middle that lost me a little bit, but once they have the quote unquote interview, from that point on to the rest of the movie, that was one of my favorite theater experiences I've had in a long time. I was having a little bit of a rough week at that time, just like mentally just a lot was going on and going in to see that movie really just raised my spirits and like made me feel good, kind of how I felt when I talked about Phantom at the Open a few weeks ago. Just one of those yeah. movies that really just delivers on a certain aspect and if you're on board with its style, because I could see a lot of people being turned off by this movie just because it's different, but if you can get in with it, I feel like everyone's going to come out of this and love it.
1: No, totally. I mean, that is—it's such a—it's—it's it's a warm hug of a movie. I, I'm glad to enjoy, uh, hear you enjoyed it. What do you think of it for animation? Uh, at I the Oscars? personally
0: have that at my number three at the moment. I feel like it's definitely one that should be in the five. Just what will be the the? I guess animation is voted one by everyone now. It's just
1: not the branch, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I think you have to volunteer to be. Um, you have to volunteer or something. Okay.
0: Because I feel like if this was just the animated branch voting, I felt like it would 100% get it. But with everyone, some people may be like, this isn't really animated, so let me just vote for Lightyear because my kids liked it sort of thing. Um, but I don't know what kid would be like, Lightyear's oh, my favorite movie of the year, like they would with Encanto or <laughs> other stuff. But, yeah. Um, this yeah, year yeah. Be, We've already talked about animated this year. It's going to be a different year, I think. I think a lot of normal trends are going to be broken this year for animation. But in, at this moment right now, I have Marcel, my five. What about you?
1: I have it at my sixth spot. I, I think I'm a little bit wary, a little bit cautious, just because I do think that people are going to look at it and go, oh, there's too much live action. It's not going gonna... to... And so, I don't know. I would love for it to... It's my number one, personally, for Animated, um, but I am a little bit cautious of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's floating... That number five slot for me is really competitive, and so... I don't know. I, I don't have it making it right now, and I think it's going to be a big controversial thing if that happens. I fully see that, and another controversial
0: thing would be some of the movies that you've seen this week, uh, because I haven't seen yeah. any of them.
1: So, um, But I've heard oh, one of them's really good, yeah. and one of them's
0: really not good, and there's one that I don't really know much about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched a lot this week, but some of the ones that I want to bring onto the show to talk about, obviously there's The Grey Man which is Netflix's biggest movie of all time and again you know Netflix has Netflix has talked so much about how like they don't want to give auteur projects money anymore. They don't want to spend 200 million dollars on letting Martin Scorsese make The Irishman, but yet they're going to spend 250 million dollars on The Gray Man, which is one of the most boring action movies I've ever seen. Like I don't know how the Russo brothers messed up the Mission Impossible formula so much. Like, is it really that hard to make... Yeah, I, I say this as someone who has no experience making multi-million dollar movies, but is it really that hard to make, like, an exciting film? Because to me, the grey man seems to confuse globetrotting with uh, excitement. And, you know, you see these Mission Impossible movies, yes, they go to a lot of places, yes, you have these spectacular uh, set pieces that happen all around the world, but it doesn't just settle for those set pieces defining the film. Like, yeah, they go to Kashmir at the end of Fallout, but they have a giant helicopter chase, they have mountain climbing, they have all of these insane things going on that, you know, it, it makes the entire film feel really vibrant and and full of so much going on. You have the halo jump scene at the beginning of the movie where, you know, he jumps out of a plane into a party and then he has to like track down people inside this party after he just jumped out of a fucking plane. Like that's insane. And the gray man, it just feels like they're constantly being like, "Hey, we're in we're in Italy now and we're going to do the same thing as before and we're going to have a few punches" And maybe we're going to drive a car. And there's going to be some gunshots, too. It, it just feels so lacking creativity. You know, when you have a franchise like Mission Impossible out there, which just has Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane a hundred times to get the perfect shot. When you have rooftop chase scenes where you have people, like, risking their bodies to jump from building to building. And then you have the Grey Man. It's so underwhelming. And, I don't know, just for this to be... Netflix saying they're going to keep spending money on movies like this and not spend money on projects like White Noise or The Irishman anymore, that's really frustrating to me because The Gray Man was the absolute embodiment of what Netflix should not be doing right now. Mm -hmm. This is what people should stop doing. You should give more creativity to people. You should, you know, fund projects like Mission Impossible where they are doing crazy things instead of just a movie like The Gray Man where they pretend to do crazy things. I don't know. I really did not like this movie. Um, I don't recommend. I don't recommend it, Dill. I don't oh. recommend it to burst your bubble. I don't know if you saw. There's gonna be a gray man too. There is, and it's so frustrating. And they better not spend two hundred million dollars on it because, actually, no, you should watch the movie because I want you to tell me where did that money go? Where did the money go? My guess is it went to
0: Ryan Gosling and it went to Ana de Armas and went to Chris Evans and went to the Russo brothers. Good for them. I good know, for, good them. for them. Uh, good makes for them. Make, Blonde and make Babylon and make everything else. I guess Ryan Gosling's not in Babylon, but La La Land and whatever. Good for them. Yeah, exactly. And another good for them type movie I saw this week was Where the Crawdads Sing. I don't really want to talk much about this movie because there's not much to say (laughs) without spoiling it. But you know, um, there's a certain plot that happens in the movie and it plays out, and
1: all you can say is good for them after it plays out. Dude, did you hear that the author of the book, because the movie just came out, it's reignited interest in her case and she's being investigated for murder right now?
0: Yeah, I, I did see that and I knew that going into the movie and watching the movie you're thinking like, oh okay. And then the movie plays out in a certain way, and you're like, Oh, okay. And that goes back to my good for them type statement because I don't know if you've yeah, seen good it. For them. have you seen Where the car I at? have
1: not no, no my fiance saw it though and she she was like, It was Fine.
0: Yeah. Um. But there's a certain plot line in the movie that also theoretically could parallel with the author. So you know, yeah, if is yeah. An accurate parallel, then you know, good for them, I guess. But um, the last thing I want to talk about that I got into this. Week, is, uh, is it good for them? No, probably not. But. For them, yes. For others, no. Um, But something that is good for everyone is Beyonce released a new album, and that's not really movie-related, but she was up for an Oscar last year. I'm sure she'll be up for one eventually again because she's been trying really hard recently. So eventually she'll get into that winner's
1: circle, just not yet. Dude, what? I love Beyonce. I haven't listened to the album yet. Yeah. Uh, you told me that you you've got some good listens in so far in the car, but I'm real. I'm gonna treasure this later's day. I can't wait to hear your thoughts next week.
0: But there's another movie that you saw this past week that I really want to see, and I should be able to watch it. Okay. Week because I'll have a lot more
1: free time, and that's After Sun. Yeah, After Sun. I I did manage to catch After Sun this week. It's interesting. It's. Um, It reminds me a lot of The Lost Daughter. Now, just for um, some background around Aftersun, this is a film it played at the Cannes director's fortnight. Um, It is the directorial debut of Charlotte Wells, and it's produced by Barry Jenkin. Now, this is a film that got some amazing buzz out of Cannes, including a lot of people saying that it's the best movie of the year. So I had really huge expectations going in. I'm a little disappointed in it. It didn't blow me away the the way that I expected to, um, but it's still very good. And the more I think about it, the more I like it, uh, because it's a film that feels like it's, it's hiding a lot. It's really hiding a lot, and there's a lot of layers to it. And I don't want to spoil too much, because I'm sure we'll be able to talk about it a little bit more next week, but After Sun is definitely very good. Um, I would say it feels to me like a cross between The Lost Daughter and Come On, Come On. Interesting, interesting.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing it. And you mentioned yeah. hiding. And we talked about it a little bit more, but it seems like Killers of the Moon is hiding from everyone. And yeah. that has a big implication on this week's predictions because I have some predictions but they include Killers of the Flower Moon because I don't really want to avoid my winner for Best Supporting Actress until I officially know I said actress. I'm an actor. But I have them winning actress too, so I have Killers of the Flower Moon winning Supporting Actor and Actress. So if it does flee, that means I have two new winners on my board. At the moment, I do have Robert De Niro winning Best Supporting Actor for Killers of the Flower Moon.
1: Dude, I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon being delayed is like, this is a huge hit because... What is this contending in? This is contending in Best Picture, Director, Actor, Supporting Actor, Times Two, Supporting Actress for Lily Gladstone, Adapted Screenplay, all of the tech categories. So this being delayed would open up a spot across the board, pretty much. So I would love to like be able to go into everything and say how things have shifted for me if Killers of the Flower Moon is not here. Um, But just overall for you, I mean, you were saying that Killers of the Flower Moon had like basically made its way to number one in picture for you. So it did. like is there anything that you see really rising off of the back of Killers of the Flower Moon missing? Like what what do you think benefits the most off of this? Well to the contrary of what my predictions were as of like three days ago, because I had updated them for
0: the end of July, I had the greatest beer run ever, from sixteen down to twenty three. But if Killers of the Flower Moon fleets Greatest Beer Run Ever is right back up to that 15-16 type range, and even though I talked a little bit negative of it earlier, Emancipation would have come into my top 25 just because Apple's gonna have to push something, whether it's Greatest mm-hmm. Beer Run or Emancipation, or if somehow Napoleon is done and they're just not talking about it at all, that would jump up too. Just They're gonna have yeah. something in my top 25, just what movie would that be? And at the moment, I guess that would be Greatest Beer Run because it does have the TIFF premiere, but... I guess it's anyone's game at this moment. Dude, it could be Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It could. Cha-Cha Real <laughs> Smooth could be Coda after all. and It have, could be Coda after all. Have three <laughs> nominations. I <laughs> had a picture, have a screenplay, and have a supporting. And this time instead
1: of actor. It's actress. And Dakota Johnson just wins out of nowhere. Dude, it, it could happen. Honestly, for me, okay, since we're on the topic of Killers of the Flower Moon being gone, something that I think really benefits from this is actually Tar. Um, Because I've had Tar floating right on the outside of my Best Picture lineup for a while. And with Killers of the Flower Moon being gone, obviously, picture shifts and things move up a little bit. And so... I now have Tar in my top ten. That's one that I think, um, especially because *Killers of the Flower Moon* was supposed to be a very slow, very pensive, like artsy drama. I see the same thing in *Tar*, and I think that *Tar* could be that replacement for it in the top ten. So that's one that I'm feeling really good about. I'm also it's got me feeling a little bit more um, excited about *Babylon* because I'm also thinking about, you know, you have this big film from a legacy director uh, who's been around, who's been at the Oscars, um, and that could be like a, a top two film. Um, and so it's got me back on the Babylon train. It's also got me back on the Fablemans train, thinking those films might benefit from having Scorsese out of the race.
0: Yeah, I echo all of that. Essentially, Babylon was down, Fablemans was down, Greatest Viewer Whenever Ever was down. And if Killers flees, they all shoot back up more than how much they dropped. And Tari is an interesting point you bring up there. For me, I personally have the sun and Empire Light outside my 10. So one of those would battle in to get into Ooh. my for that spot. Because I'm still rocking with that this is the year where they're going to try to get more populist movies in. Like Avatar, like Top right. Gun, like Elvis, like everything everywhere all at once. That's for 100 million plus grocers worldwide. Will that actually happen? Probably not, but I would like to see that happen. So kind of more of a manifestation pick, especially with Elvis slash Top Gun at my 8-9 slot right now.
1: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I mean, Scorsese missing just—it transforms the landscape of the race, because there we've talked about Oscar follow-ups in the past, and someone that you really can usually count on to get in— I say usually because obviously things like silence happen, things like Shutter Island happen, where they just get goose-egged. But Killers of the Flower Moon seemed like it was pretty much guaranteed a slot in the top 10. So this now opens it up to some other filmmakers, but it also complicates next year's race, which already was looking pretty packed with Dune Part 2, with Maestro, and now we got Killers of the Flower Moon next year. But... We've talked enough about Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's get into some, to some like, nitty-gritty predictions. And today we're going to be doing our supporting categories. And the reason we're going to be doing those supporting categories is because we really want to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon missing in these categories. Because they've been so instrumental in these, uh, these two picks right here. Like these uh, supporting actors, supporting actress. Killers of the Flower Moon has been a mainstay for us. So what happens without it? So, Dill, let's uh, let's take it away. Supporting actor. What do you got first with Killers of the Flower Moon, and then let's talk about what happens without Killers of the Flower Moon.
0: All right, so with Killers of the Flower Moon, I think that will be the film that, because every year in the supporting category, we have one movie that takes up two slots, whether it's an actor or actress. And if Killers of the Flower Moon comes out, I think that is the movie with Robert De Niro and with Jesse Plymouth. I also have Kehoe Kwan for Everything, Everywhere, All At Once, Paul Dana for The Fable, and Brad Pitt for Babylon as my five and supporting actor. But if you switch things up a little bit and take out The Killers Boys, you have your new winner, which I'm very happy to say, and I know you'll be happy to hear, is Kehoe Kwan for Everything, Everywhere, All At Once. He has the narrative. I don't see Paul Dana winning on his first trip. And Brad Pitt just won his last time, so is he really going to win two in a row? I don't think Mm -hmm. so. But The Fablemans does become the movie that has two supporting actor candidates, with Seth Rogan moving into my top five, and then joining him as my number new five slot would be Ray Fiennes in The Menu. As you mentioned last week, that could be mm. sort of a category flawed, but it is going to tiff. It's going to have eyes on it. It has... He, he's an actor who deserves a nomination. It's been a while. Has he, has he gotten one?
1: Or has it been a long time since he has? He, it's been a long time since he has. There was talk about him for Grand Budapest Hotel... Uh, but he didn't get it. But I, I don't know if he's had one since Schindler's List. Okay, so yeah, I knew he got in for Schindler's List. I just can't remember if there's been anything
0: since then. But I don't think so as well. Michael Ward is someone who also makes a lot of sense getting get into that five slot if the Killers boys are gone. But just like Ray Fines, he's arguably lead from what we've heard. And are they going to mm-hmm. have two category frauds and one category? because Brad? Maybe Pitt's three because also- Brad Pitt. Yeah, because Brad Pitt's also considered a lead sort of, so it'll be interesting to see who ends up getting in, especially with the Killers guys gone, because just like last year, this is looking to be a very weird category where arguably the five that were mentioned in August are not even around when it comes time in February.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have a very good list here. Um, Now, with Michael Ward, with Ray Fiennes, with Brad Pitt, I would argue that all three of those are leads. Um, Brad Pitt, Babylon, I've read the script for Babylon, His character is definitely supporting, but he has that sort of um, Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood vibe where the whole story kind of revolves around him, even if he's not necessarily the lead. Now, Tom Hanks Mm -hmm. did go supporting for for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, so that could happen here, or the studio could go, he just won supporting, let's let's push him in the lead, let's see if we can get away with him being a lead actor. I think they totally could. Rafe Fines in the menu, he's a character who, although not the main character, he arguably has the most screen time. He is the center of attention the entire time. He's walking around this restaurant, cooking meals, speaking to people. Everything revolves around him. And like I said before, his performance is going to be like a mix of Kathy Bates in Misery and Gordon Ramsay. Or, you know, more of a, a Ray Fines character. Uh, I guess, comparison. More of a Ralph Fiennes comparison would be it's like if his character from Schindler's List uh, was Gordon Ramsay. I stick with Gordon Ramsay. It's clearly inspired by Gordon Ramsay. And there have been some reports that Michael Ward is uh, the lead of Empire of Light alongside Olivia Colman, um, especially because right now on Gold Derby, Colin Firth is in the lead category and Michael Ward is in supporting. Now Colin Firth apparently has like a cameo in the movie at most. Um. So really, I think we're going to see those positions flip. But I, I also want to, I want to add some stuff. Um, Something that I notice is not in your top 10. And that's because it's not on Gold Derby. Zen McGrath in The Sun. Now Zen McGrath plays The Sun in The Sun. It's not on Gold Derby though, weirdly. But what do you think about that one? In fact, he's my number 11. I just uh, My list at the moment was with
0: the Killers guys in there. So someone couldn't make it, and I am someone who can be biased a little bit. So I do have Ashton Sanders at number 10 with I Want to Dance with Somebody just because I've loved his work in Moonlight. So I see him in a possible Oscar movie with a <laughs> screenwriter who usually gets people in there for acting categories. So I like, I'll keep him at 10, especially because – Like I mentioned before, this is just a mess of a category, especially if Killers gets moved. But Zim McGrath is someone who easily could be in the five if Ray Fiennes, Michael Ward, Dugo lead, if Brad Pitt's a lead, if Killers doesn't come out. There's so many open spots. That's all depending Mm -hmm. on just what happens in the next month or so with this category. And just who's really Mm going to be this year's um, just, because like last year no one who we really thought in August actually was there.
1: At the end yeah. of the year. Well, people were predicting the, the guys from Mass.
0: hmm I was one of those.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I know you still feel pretty high on Elvis. What do you think about Tom Hanks? Ah, uh, I don't know about Tom Hanks because there definitely is a route
0: for him, especially if everyone clears the field. Because if they like Elvis, they're probably going to like Tom Hanks. And he's Tom Hanks. But Tom Hanks does not really have the best track record at the Oscars. He doesn't usually get in when people think he's going to get in. Is he going to get in for a performance this divisive? I'm not really sure. And someone else that I know a lot of people are saying, like, he should be on your top 10 list for, like, Gold Derby and stuff like that is Anthony Hopkins and Armageddon Time. And I just don't see Mm -hmm. that happening. I just don't see Armageddon Time doing anything. Just from the early buzz and just how it's not showing up at venice or at tiff yeah again so it's just seeming like the stock for that movie is just down 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 could it get some few critics group stuff here later sure he's anthony hopkins but is it going to be a player at some of the bigger containers like BAFTAs or globes or the oscars i don't think so
1: that's a that's a really good point point. You know, I I feel confident in Hopkins still because he's Hopkins and because all of the praise that I've heard about the movie has revolved around Hopkins, but you're right. That said, Focus Features is releasing it at the end of October, and it seems like a more prime release date for them than even with Tar. They gave Tar like an early October release and Armageddon Time an end of October release. So I'm going to be watching out because Armageddon Time still could show up in a later TIFF reveal.
0: Well, flipping over to the other category for Supporting Actress, if Killers of the Flower Moon is gone, that means Lily Gladstone is gone. She's my personal pick to win this category. Was she yours before this uh, possible move was spoken to existence? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I definitely have jumped a little bit faster than you have to remove Killers of the Flower Moon from everything. Because I feel confident that this is happening. But Lily Gladstone was my number one in Supporting Actress. I've, I mean, she was the one thing in the script that I read that I really enjoyed. So that was a character that I was really seeing winning this prize. So having her gone, I have to reshape everything. And I'm going to be honest, I'm having some big troubles with this uh, category. So I have some questions for you after I go through sort of my top uh, picks, because I have a lot of people from the same film showing up in my top 10. Mostly just because I'm really at a loss for who else should be in there. So, number one, I've got Michelle Williams and the Fablemans. With Lily Gladstone gone, she really has a great narrative. I mean, the Fablemans is going to win the People's Choice Award at TIFF, which means that it's at least gonna win one above the line Oscar, and I have bets on Paul Dano and Michelle Williams playing Spielberg's parents. Michelle Williams in this, I think she has a great narrative. She's been nominated enough times, she's never won. And I can see people all kind of coming to a consensus that yeah, she deserves this. She's earned it. She has done enough to make it there. But then after number one, I'm at a loss and I'm just gonna say it out in like a rough order, but I really don't know what's happening here and it could happen anywhere. So in no particular order here, I've got Sadie Sink in The Whale. Now, this is a role where uh, having read the script, I think that her character is really, really something special. And I think seeing her in Stranger Things, she really has impressed me with her acting chops. And I think that she has a really big chance of getting that Oscar nomination, but she's so young. She's so young that she might get written out. Uh, She might also get written out as like, oh, she's just that Stranger Things actor. Uh, She also didn't get um, an acting nomination at the Emmys this year, which shows that voters might be a little bit apprehensive around her. So I'm not so sure about Sadie Sink. Then I've got Gene Smart in Babylon. Uh, I've heard a lot of great buzz about her. Her character is hilarious in this film, but it's also a really small role. So it's one that I'm also really, really shaky about on this i don't know if her role is going to be big enough to stay in the conversation also are people over predicting her because she's had such success at the emmys lately it's very possible so you know i'm less confident in her as well then i've got two women talking girls i've got judith ivy and jesse buckley both of them have ups and downs. Now, as I've said over and over, Judith Ivey is playing a role that was originally Francis McDormand's. Uh, and Frances McDormand was the producer. She had the role given to her. And then she said, no, 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 I don't fit this role. I wanna give this to my friend, Judith. Um, and that to me says that this is a role that is really strong. If originally they cast Francis McDormand in it, it's something that could bag Oscars. I've also heard a lot of talk about Jesse Buckley being absolutely spectacular in this movie, but It's such an ensemble piece, I don't know who is going to rise above. Is it going to be Judith Ivey, Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy? Is it going to be Rooney Mara or someone else entirely? It's very possible all around there. Then I've also got Dolly DeLeon in Triangle of Sadness, which apparently she's a massive standout, and if this film goes to the Oscars, she's coming along with it, because apparently she's hilarious and like got a standing ovation at Cannes and had people stopping her on the street saying, you were the best part of that movie. So that's um, very possible, but could Triangle of Sadness go nowhere? Absolutely. Um, then I also have The Sun, ladies. I've got Laura Dern, Vanessa Kirby, I've heard mixed things that really the drama in this film is between Hugh Jackman and Zen McGrath. Um, I don't I haven't gotten a firm response about who is more of a weighty character. Vanessa Kirby has better odds on Gold Derby, but Laura Dern seems like she has a meteor role. But i've heard it's pretty tied between them and really neither of them is the focus of the film so i don't know what that's going to be and then i've got the everything ever all at once ladies i've got jamie lee curtis who obviously has the academy legacy but it's a small performance it's a very jokey performance and it's not really like a standout performance in the film Uh, also stephanie sue um but she's a performance that's going to connect more with millennials than it is going to with the older academy voters but again, I I just have no idea what's going on with this category, you know. The only one that I feel really confident about is Michelle Williams, and everything else is just kind of up in the air for me. Um, so I don't know what what are you thinking, Dill. What what else do you have in yours that I'm missing here? So I'm just like you, no clue where this category is going.
0: Besides Michelle Williams and Lily Gladstone, but if Gladstone's gone, then that just leaves Williams. I. Unlike you went with one of the She Say Girls, just assuming that Zokazan is the supporting one, but well, it could be Carrie Mulligan. Regardless, I have whoever gets stoned in supporting as my number two at the moment with Lily Gladstone gone. Then mm. I have some stuff to adjust because last time I touched this, I had Whoopi Goldberg at three. I saw the Till trailer today. Whoopi Goldberg is not even in the trailer. So she has jumped from top five to off my ten. Um, then I have Laura Dern for the Sun at number four which i'm going with her because of the her character in the play is the one that apparently has like you said the more meaty performance has the more weight behind it but i have vanessa Kirby at six just outside Sandwiched in between them though is janelle monet for glass onion i'm very high on this movie at the moment like i said i think like it has a chance to win the people's choice it, i think it's my number 13 in picture i have it in screenplay i have it here in supporting an actress and i have it for a few texts at the moment as well if Netflix is really making this as a second push and it it's getting the reception that the first Nights Out got, I think the sky's the limit for this movie in terms of nominations. And then after that, I look a lot like you with having multiple women talking, um, actresses, multiple everything everywhere. All at once, actresses, and City Sync for The Will, who was my number three last time we talked. But she dropped to all the way down to 10, but she's probably going to come back up with all this ever-changing stuff because, like I said, Whoopi Goldberg's gone. I have to remove Lily Gladstone. And... Like you said, Jamie Lee Curtis has the name, but the performance, there's not that much there to go off of.
1: Totally. This is such a weird category. And just to rattle off, I was going through some of the gold derby odds just to see what else could be a contender. So Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, they both could be there or they both could be lead. I have no idea and I, I can't really place them either way. Right now, I'd say likely they're both leads. On Gold Derby, I also see Hong Chao in The Whale is there, but I've read the script and her character is, I'm going to just say right now, she's not a contender for this. I love Hong Chao, but she honestly has a better shot for the menu than this, and she has no shot for the menu. But then a few names caught my eye that I really don't know what they're going to be doing in their movies, Um, but they might end up being contenders, which is Griselda Siciliani in Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, that's someone I've never heard of Grisel- Grisella sorry, I've never heard of Griselda Siciliani, but that's something if Bardo's a contender, she could come along with it, like Marina de Tavira did. Uh, there's also Nina Haas in Tar. I've talked about how Tar is in my top ten for picture now. She could come along for the ride with Kate Blanchett as well. And you said in your top five, you have Janelle Monet. I don't know what she's gonna be doing in the movie. So I do have to put her outside my top 10, even. But that's someone who I have on my radar. I'm watching out. I'm seeing what could they do. Like, what is Janelle McNeil going to do in this movie? She could end up being really a strong contender. But right now, I have no idea. Uh, That's the fun of these categories, though. Last year, did we have any idea that at the very end of the year, Troy Kotzer was going to win? No, none. So, who knows? Who knows? But let's uh, let's bring it home for the week, and we're going to do our weekly picture roundup. So, Dil, take it away. What is your best picture list this week? What's rising? What's falling? So, I'm going to do this under the impression that Killers is gone.
0: So, that means Avatar lives another week on top of the throne. Will it stay there much longer? I don't know. After that Black Panther trailer, a lot of my Avatar hype has been adjusted, just because there's going to be two movies that look very similar, coming out within a month, distributed by the same studio. What will happen with that, I don't really know. and I'm still sticking with it for the moment, but it easily could switch in the weeks coming. But that moves Women Talking up to the number two slot with it getting the TIFF uh, premiere as well as the other places it will be going. There's a lot of buzz for this movie. After that bidding war was that ferocious, that means this movie has to be something special. That moves Bardo up to three, Babylon to four, The Fablemans at 5, and everything everywhere all at once at 6. So none of those have really changed. But then below that we have Empire Light now moving into number 7 with Elvis, Top Gun, and She Said rounding out the 10. Even though I think Top Gun has a better shot of getting a nomination than Empire Light, I still see the the route for Top Gun being a little bit more difficult than it is for Empire Light at the moment. So I have Top Gun a little bit below it. Because 8 and 9 are two movies that I really think should be in there at the end of the day based off of like stats and stuff for Top Gun and Elvis but there's clear avenues to where they will miss. And then she said is one that I'm very mixed on because of that trailer but all the buzz that we've heard from it is very positive. So I really want to keep it in my tent for the moment. And that would leave The Sun and Glass Onion as my two just outside that are really trying to fight to get in just I don't really have space for
1: them at the moment. Mm. Now I just want to say, I mean, you keep saying Glass Onion is going to win the People's Choice Award. And if you're predicting that, you really do need to have it in your top 10 for Best Picture. Well, I haven't said it's 100% going to win. I think
0: it's the sleeper chance to win. I still think you're right with Fableman's going to take it out on top. And that's why Fableman's is still in my 10, even if just, it's just very hard for me to see It, like, dominated the way people are saying it's dominating, but, I mean, I was wrong last year, and Belfast still did everything everyone said it was going to do besides um, getting in specific people in categories, even though those people, it still got in for those categories, but I don't know, I still think Glass Onion has a very strong chance to overthrow the Fable Mints if the Fable Mints is not as good, but... Sometimes it doesn't matter, and the name Spielberg will be enough to just win, regardless of the quality of the movie. But I feel like if Glass Onion elevates the story to another way, which it seems like it could, especially with the cast, in my opinion, being even better than the one in the first movie, I feel like it definitely has a strong shot. But that's still more of a hope prediction than a smart prediction.
1: Mm -hmm. I really like seeing that everything, everywhere, all at once keeps climbing up the ranks for you, man. I really, really do like that. At number six right now, I know we're going to push it, it's going to be up higher. As the year goes on. I think when we first started the podcast like eight weeks ago, it was around your like number 10 slot. So now to see it at number six, it's really, really validating for me. And I I hope we keep pumping it higher. Now, why is she said at your number 10? I'm I'm really curious that why you have she said so low. The biggest thing is Universal also having the Fable men's
0: which if the Fable men's is what people think it's gonna be. That has the bigger push, and can the Universal fit two movies in the picture? I personally think they can, but it'll be interesting to see because like Searchlight just has one, the Sun just has one, Apple would just have one if Killer stays around or it's gone. Netflix has one, f- pretty much for sure, but it's fighting for a second and stuff like that. So the deal mm-hmm. could get crowded up pretty quickly because a lot of studios are just focusing on that one big movie, but then also have a smaller one. While Universal seems to have two big movies, just. Can they manage two at the same time? She said similarly.
1: Oh, Go ahead, go ahead.
0: I was just saying, she said still solidly in my 10, but I feel better having Elvis slash Top Gun
1: above it than I do having Mm -hmm. Elvis or Top Gun at the 10. You make a great point, though, about uh, Universal maybe having too much on their plate to balance. Now, I do think both Universal movies get in, and I also have, just like you, I have Babylon and Top Gun in, but those are both paramount. Do we see a possibility that Paramount drops the ball with uh, campaigning both of these and one of them gets left out? I think the biggest difference for those two compared to the Universal ones is Top Gun's
0: campaigning, they don't really have to do. The last three months have been or two months has been Top Gun's campaign being the biggest domestic grocer outside of No Way Home in the pandemic era. Mm -hmm. and now is if you don't adjust for inflation like a top 10 movie domestically of all time i think it's approaching number five and that's a movie that the masses will speak for where paramount obviously will still have to campaign it a little bit more but the buzz around this movie isn't going away and unlike spider-man who only had like a month to build that hype top gun has the whole season it's not going to leave people's radars and it could falter out at the end especially if black panther rises up into the occasion avatars just head and shoulders above it if elvis gets an even bigger push from warner brothers it could falter off just at this moment right now i would be amazed if
1: top of top gun maverick the best picture mm. yeah i mean i i'm just thinking about it now and I, I don't know i might actually move top gun just down out of my top 10 maybe just because now i'm thinking about it and is that ba- like they're definitely they have to push Babylon more. They have to push Babylon more. And like you said, the last three months have been a campaign for Top Gun. But is that campaign going to be front of mind for people in December? Really? Like, is that going to be in January, February when Oscar voting's happening? Is that really going to be top of mind? I don't know. So I don't know. I have Top Gun at my number 10, but I'm I keep I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence about it with Paramount having both of them. And one thing I wanna dive
0: into real quick before we hop out for the day is for a picture. I have I Wanna Dance With Somebody Continue to Rise on my list with the fleeting movies. This is one that I feel like will be in the conversation regardless if it's good or not. This is just the type of movie that people will vote for. Because we've seen in the past mm-hmm. if you have a recognizable character that also has a good tone and feel to it, people will support it whether it is Bohemian Rhapsody or other movies along those lines. That I want to dance with somebody is at least going to show up an actress. That's, I think, the bare minimum. It's a Judy bare minimum with a two nomination. But I also feel like it could get up to a four or five, depending on how receptive it is. And then, just like last week, Don't Worry Darling is still on the way down. But Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, After Sun, and The Whale have now hopped up into my top 25 where they weren't in the last few weeks.
1: Awesome, well, I'm really excited to see how this continues to play out, especially because we're gonna keep getting this news. And on the topic of film ball, of course, we have our film ball coming up, our game coming up. We're gonna be starting a Discord channel very soon for the game, for the YouTube channel and the podcast. So you can join our community and join our game of film ball. But on the topic of film ball, I'm really glad that Killers of the Flower Moon had this news of it being pushed this early because if it was pushed, after the draft had happened. How disastrous would that be, Dil? Very, because that
0: would be my number one on the board, even above Avatar, just because of the nomination slew it could get. So I'm glad that if it is being pushed, we at least know now, because now, even if it stays, and they don't say anything, it's not a first-round pick anymore. You have the wariness of where It most likely is fleeting. So it'll be Mm -hmm. really interesting to see what does become the unanimous number one, because every year I feel like we've had a unanimous number one, whether it was... Um, This past year with Power of the Dog or the year before when people were, when I took Make, when I Mm -hmm. personally didn't feel like Make should be number one, but I was like, I don't really see what else there is. And ultimately, it wasn't the number one. No medley. I came up out of the place. And then you said the year before when y'all started, what was number one? Was it 1917? Uh, No, it
1: was, it was the Irishman. The Irishman was number one of those. Yeah, I think Irishman was the first to go. It was either that or it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Those were the two big ones then. Well, it'll be mm-hmm. interesting
0: to see what it comes up this year because with the Irishman, not with the Irishman, with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon gone, I guess the unanimous quote quote would be the Fable Men's, but still, I'm a little wary
1: on that, but I guess it really comes down, because you would have the first pick, right? I got the first pick this year, and I think it's pretty obvious what I'm going for at this point. Yes, I think it is. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious what my first pick is, but I'm heartbroken that I can't take Babylon. Mm. Um, that said, you know, again, next week we will have that Discord server running, and we will be starting a community around this game, around this podcast, uh, and we're really excited to share that with you guys. But that said, thank you guys for tuning into episode eight of Fantasy Film Ball. I'm very curious. What do you guys think? What does Killers of the Flower Moon leaving imply for you guys? Are you more excited for it next year? Do you think it could win Best Picture next year? Let me know in the comments. I'm really excited to start that conversation with you guys. But until then, I'm Matt. And I'm Dylan. And this is Fantasy Film Ball. Thank you for
0: tuning in to this episode of Fancy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at @filmball. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.